Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be covering the first four speeches of Job. Job is important for many reasons, especially these speeches, because it gives us a window into the ancient world and their ideas about suffering, pain, cosmic justice, retributive justice, just how the world works. Just reading Job, it's incredible that we have this document. You have a long back and forth conversation, point, counterpoint, of people's thoughts, hopes, desires, everything poured into long stretches of dialogue that we don't have anywhere else in the Bible. This is incredibly critical into understanding their mindset, how they thought the world operated, and it gives us this picture of this ancient world. We're all familiar with the initial setup in Job, how God is in heaven or in the divine council, and he's approached by the Satan or Satan. And there becomes this divine bet or this divine wager in which the Satan is talking to Yahweh. And Yahweh says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. This guy's perfect. And, and the text uses the perfect language. There's no faults in Job. And the Satan says, you know what? Maybe this guy's only serving you because it benefits him. Maybe it's just a reciprocal thing that's motivating him to serve. He's not serving you for being God. He's serving you because you give him things. It's, it's not selfless. And so they have to engage in this divine bet, this divine wager, in order to determine whether or not Job serves and worships God of his own accord, or if it, he's, his motivation is through physical wealth, getting something in return for his worship. Is his love of God selfless? That's the question in heaven. But the dialogue doesn't explore that. The dialogue doesn't explore the bet and the purpose of the bet, the meaning of the bet, and even if the bet was actually won by any of the individuals there. The dialogue portion of Job is primarily concerned with cosmic justice. How does God rule the world? How does the world operate? And what is right and what is wrong? Job's friends should be very familiar to us because daily we interact with Christians, Christians with the same types of arguments. Calvinists, you'll, you'll see a lot of overlap between Job's friends' arguments and Calvinists. This is probably why the Calvinists really like the fourth friend that comes along. The fourth friend, of course, being Elihu. We had talked about his arguments in our Job podcast, which we covered the whole of the book of Job. That's a good podcast. Uh, I strongly recommend it. In the speeches that we're going to cover today, we are also going to see a lot of overlap between Job's friends and what Calvinists say. And then I, I'll point it out as we go. And Job himself is pretty interesting because Job is not condemned in the same way the friends are. Job spoke right about God. So we have to figure out what is Job saying that is actually correct. And Job is not to be taken as everything he says is absolutely 100% correct. But there's something in what Job says that resonates with God, in which God still regards him very high at the end of the book, and restores all his fortunes. And he condemns the friends in anger, which is not shown towards Job. So Job is our guy in this story. We, we've got the setup. We, we got not only Job 1 describing him as the perfect individual, but we got positive affirmation of God's preference towards Job and God affirming Job's statements in this text. 
Job has been afflicted with all his children dying, all his things being taken away, uh, sores all over his body that he scrapes his sores with this broken pottery. It's this very humbling experience. Just think third world poverty, something something terrible like that where where everything that can go wrong has gone wrong, and this guy is in the utter depths of despair. His first speech, he opens up to his friends. His friends come to visit him, and they sit quietly for a long time. And Job opens up first, and he says this, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, This man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine above it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let the clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. So his first wish is that he never been born. He wishes he was not born. He goes on to say that uh, he wished he died in childbirth. The pain that he's going through is so extreme that he wishes he was never born at all. All the, all the benefits, all, all the bliss, all the happiness that he's experienced up to this point, he would do away with to undo this experience that he has just had, which has totally devastated him. Job goes on to say, For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept, and I would have been at rest. So in Job's mind, his idea of death is there's rest, there's peace. And uh, he speaks elsewhere in Job about the dead not rising again. Seeing the same concept, Job 14, As the waters fell from the lake and the river wastes up and dries up, so man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused from his sleep. And this language, till the heavens is no more, it's idiomatic meaning never. Just as Jesus says, not one jot or tittle will be withdrawn from the law till the fullness comes. He's saying that it'll never go away. It'll never go away. It's idiomatic speech. And let's take a look very carefully at Job's idea of Sheol or the underworld. He says this, he says, I would have laid down and been quiet, I would have slept, and I would have been at rest with the kings and counselor of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. So all these kings and counselors, they're all dead. They're all in shill. He says that this, there the wicked will cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there. The slave is free from his master. Why is the light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? So the grave is the great equalizer. It, all people go to the grave. Uh, all people see death. And in, in that death, there's a peace. There's a rest that comes. All these people who were once oppressed or not oppressed, all these kings who had great and mighty empires, they, they no longer can oppress people. They are no longer engaged in all these pursuits. It's, it's a great uh, peace. Sheol, the underworld. The first friend to speak is Eliphaz. So the first speech represents Eliphaz the Temanite. And he says this, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now has come to you, and if you are impatient, if it touches you and you are demayed, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? He's saying, if, if you have integrity, if you are doing what's right, 
God is your hope. So put your hope in God. He'll make sure to give to you what you deserve. He says this, remember who that was innocent has ever perished or where were the upright cut off? And so he's appealing to Job's experience, which is really funny because Job also appeals to his experience within the, the dialogues of Job. He says, the wicked always prosper and the, the righteous, they die young. And Eliphaz is saying, where does that ever happen? He's saying, everyone gets what they deserve. Does it sound a little bit Calvinistic already that uh, there's a system of merit and reward based on people's actions, God's micromanaging everything that happens, and all punishment is from God. All punishment. He says, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish. By the blast of his anger, they are consumed. So in Eliphaz's worldview, in his mindset, God is punishing everyone who does wicked. Someone does wicked and God is micromanaging that and making sure that person gets their just due and vice versa. It's, it's almost like a Calvinistic micromanagement, except for Eliphaz is not a Calvinist in the sense that he doesn't think that people are fated to do these things. He just thinks there's, there's instant retributive justice. And remember, retributive justice is the concept that here on earth, people are rewarded or punished based on their deeds, good or bad. And David Kleins, as he writes over and over again, the point of the book of Job is to show that retributive justice is not a facet of this world. These friends are wrong when they're giving these speeches about what God does, how God acts, and how the world functions. These guys are dead wrong, and they anger God. So let's, let's be looking at to see, see how they anger God. And right now, Eliphaz is saying that all the punishment, all the bad things happening to you are from God. Because that's, that's where these things come from. Eliphaz in verse 12 starts appealing to what seems like a dream or a vision that he had while he was sleeping. He says, Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, the hair my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. For a form was before my eyes, there was silence, then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? So in Eliphaz's dream, God is speaking to him, and he's appealing to this dream as if it was a legitimate dream that God had sent to him. And we know this is false. This is this is not a true dream. It's not a true... Uh, it's, God's not talking to this guy. And he's actually not saying the right questions because when God actually does talk within the book of Job, it's about can you still worship God uh, who does wonderful things in spite of everything that happens in the world? It's, it's more of what God actually says rather than this dream that Eliphaz is appealing to. And Eliphaz is just saying, basically, he's, he's using this worm theology that the Calvinists like. They'd say, oh, man is so low, man is nothing, man is dust, and we can't even, we can't even just begin to want to even compare to God or stand up against God. God can, might makes right. Uh, God does everything he wants, and man has no say in it. Man is nothing. And, and that's, it's, it's not true. It's not true. Um, 
In fact, Mike makes right as Job's criticism of God, ironically. He says, God just does whatever he wants, and that's wrong. And I will scream from my deathbed that, uh, that God is wrong. God's in the wrong here. If God doesn't acknowledge it, the earth will cry up for me. I will be vindicated in my death against God. So Job doesn't share this the Calvinist worm theology. He doesn't think that he has no rights before God. He doesn't think, as Job's friends do, that God just could kill anyone because everyone's deserving of death and, and everything God does is just for the sake of being just. There, there's no wrong with God because everyone is so below them they don't understand God's justice. The, the, those are Calvinistic ideas. So it's, it's really funny to read Job's friends. These guys truly are the Calvinists. The modern-day Calvinists use the same arguments that Job's friends use. And that they're the ones condemned in this narrative as the ones who are absolutely wrong. Let's take a look at the contrast here. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Switch over to Job 1. There's a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright who feared God and turned away from evil. And then Yahweh says to him, he says, uh, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like on him on earth, and a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And so there's the answer to Eliphaz. Eliphaz is just downright wrong in his dream. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? There is a mortal man in this very story who is in the right before God. And specifically in the text, explicitly says that is the case. So yes, a man can be in the right before God. And uh, Eliphaz goes on to say, even his servants he puts no trust. His angels he charges with error. He says, even the angels are bad. And so how much more can a man be? A man is lower than that. He says, men dwell in houses of clay. Oh, they are so low and they're so... Uh, down below God. They they live in houses that you build with dirt. This is how worm-like man is compared to God, Job. Don't you understand how low man is and how high God is? And so don't even try to uh, accuse God of error, as Job was. Eliphaz then says he sees all the time the wicked people, they get destroyed, their children die. And that's another theme of Job. Whereas when the wicked, when their children prosper, that is a sign of God's blessing towards the wicked. You know, if, if you really want to punish the wicked in, in Job and elsewhere in the Bible, you, you hurt the children too. Uh, they really care about their children. You hurt the children. We see Eliphaz echo this. He says this, I've seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. And there is no one to deliver them. Eliphaz then goes on to encourage Job to seek God. Because if, if Job has recanted of anything that he's done wrong, if he's actually truly blameless and upright, God will be a salvation. God will move in and right any wrong. He says, As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. So this is another Calvinist thing that uh, they always appeal to how great and lofty God is, how unsearchable, unfathomable everything about God is. And so you just have to just just, just trust that uh, everything he does is, is righteous. Everything he does is good. There's, there's no way to criticize him. We are so down low, and he's beyond our understanding. 
this appeal to the unimaginable. He's saying, we can't imagine what God's like, and uh, therefore he's so great and mighty. Uh, Job doesn't buy into this theology. And then Eliphaz then goes into a big list of things that God does on earth, uh, micromanaging the earth. He sends rain, sends waters. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the craft. So it's all these list of things, how God micromanages the earth. And if we fast forward to Yahweh's counter speech in Job, that's not the way that he describes what's going on. There's the world is intricate and detailed. There's a lot going on. God's not a micromanager, but there are a lot of moving parts. Eliphaz says he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters and his, his hands heal. He'll deliver you from six troubles and seven. No evil shall touch you in famine. He'll redeem you from death and war, the power of the sword. It's all this power stuff that uh, God's micromanaging everything. And Eliphaz is wrong, wrong in uh, what he says about God. Job's next speech says this, Oh, that my vexation were weighted and all my calamity laid in the balances. He says, nothing justifies what's going on here. So everything you're saying, um, that doesn't solve the scales of justice. And Calvinists will always do that too. They'll say, there's a purpose and reason for everything. And it's like, okay, what's the purpose for the Holocaust? What what ultimate good is going to outweigh that evil? (laughs) What is? And Job says, your, your scales, your, your system of judgment is all off. Nothing that I'm going through is justified. There, there's no redeeming aspect that's going to come out of this. He says, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me, and my spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. So Job is blaming God directly for all that's come against him. And uh, even if you're under the opinion that the Satan is not God's agent working for Yahweh, you still have to admit that in the opening narratives, it was Yahweh enabling all this to come against Job. So at least in that sense, in that sense, Yahweh is doing this to Job. And so here's what Job says. He says, oh, that I might have my request. He's like, God, I just want one thing. Just kill me. Um, I'm ready to die. I just cut me off. I don't want to be suffering like this anymore. Why don't you just kill me? He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrental streams that pass away. He's saying, all you guys, you're, you're terrible. You're terrible. You pretend to be my friends. You're not. If you're my friends, you'd comfort me and court Yahweh's wrath. Because allying yourself with me will put yourself in jeopardy. But you don't do that because you're terrible friends. Skipping down to verse 21, we're in Job 6. For you have now become nothing. You have seen my calamity and are afraid. They don't want to associate with Job because doing so would put them possibly in God's uh, crosshairs. They might be punished by that. Job says, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. Remember, Eliphaz's speech relies on the premise that Job has done something wrong. Flipping back to Eliphaz's speech, Job 5, 6, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. He's saying there's no random happenstance. Everything that happens is by the designation or decree, predestination of God. God, Every trouble that happens is God's punishment for, for something that you've done. So inherently, Eliphaz is accusing Job of wrongdoing. 
and all everything that happens on earth is God's doing. God is the cause of all things to Eliphaz. He is the Calvinist. Which invites Job to say, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. Because he will maintain his innocence throughout all of Job. And he is correct. He is the correct one in this. He says, is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Chapter 7, Job starts into this long lament again about wishing to be dead, understanding that life is misery and pain. He says, as the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to shield does not come up, reinforcing his idea there's, there's no resurrection. Once you're to shield, you're, it's done and gone. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. He says, am I the sea or a sea monster that you set guard over me? I re remember back to creation myths in which God conquers chaos. Chaos is the sea. There's a sea monster. There's the Leviathan. And God controls that monster. We talked a little bit about that in my discussion with Joe Sable about does God cause everything to happen? Does God cause hurricanes to happen? He goes on and says, I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. He's, he's ready to die. He wants to die. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. He's saying, why are you even bothering with me, God? I'm going to die anyways. I got a short lifespan. So why? Why are you doing this to me? Am I like a great sea monster? You're just me, lowly Job here. I'm, I'm, I'm a threatening monster that you're just going to sit there and torment me. He says this, how long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? And what this argument is, he's saying, I'm not even asking you to do favorable things for me. I'm just saying, ignore me, leave me alone. Just let me live normally without your intervention because this, your intervention has brought me to this state of despair. Job 7.21 has been used off and on to claim that Job might have had some transgression, but he's, he's using this in a hypothetical sense. We know from the prologue there is no transgression or fault in Job. The entire book of Job is premised on this fact. This, Job says, Why do you not pardon my transgression or take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth, and you will seek me, but I shall not be. David Kleins writes this, It may appear that Job, in the very last verse of this speech, makes a fundamental admission of guilt when he asks, Why do you not pardon my sin? Yet if Job considers himself a sinner in need of divine forgiveness, we may well wonder why he has not sought such forgiveness from the very beginning of his suffering, rather than proclaim his desire for death and protest God's assaults on him. Indeed, the supposition that Job acknowledges that he is guilty makes nonsense of the whole course of the book Hitherto. It must rather be that Job means by my sin, my sin as you, God, reckon it. Job is suffering, and unless God's dealings with human beings are quite arbitrary, a possibility that Job will only later seriously entertain in chapter 9, God must have something against Job to make him suffer as he does. Very well, says Job. I will not debate whether God is right and counting me a sinner. I will only ask that he should overlook and forgive, not punish, the sin of a feeble dying man like myself. The verse lies entirely in the shadow of the hypothesis of verse 20. If I have sinned, that is my sin, meaning my hypothetical sin, the sin that must be hypothesized if my suffering is to be explained. Job's not a sinner. Job has not sinned. He maintains his innocence throughout the book. 
The book is premised. It doesn't make sense if he's a sinner. All the Calvinists and even Job's friends will argue, as Bildad will in the very next speech, that Job deserves what he's getting because everyone's a sinner. Everyone deserves some sort of punishment. No one could argue against what God does. That's not true. Bildad next comes on the scene, and he's a little bit more forward than the first friend. He's a little bit more accusatory towards Job, whereas Eliphaz had just suggested that Job was a sinner. Bildad goes out and says it. He says, how long will you say these things? And words of your mouth be such a great wind. He's saying, you're just blabbing your mouth. You're just making a bunch of wind. Shut your face, is what he's saying. This guy, <laughs> this is a bad person, Bildad. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? <laughs> you see that. You see, you see this, these Calvinist notions that <clears throat> whatever God does is right. There's no, quote unquote, wrong in God no matter what God does. And he's saying, your accusations against God are making God out to be less than he is. So Bildad's speaking forcibly, like a Calvinist will, against anyone who might say something that might uh, lessen God in their eyes. I guess Calvinists are all about, oh, you're lessening the glory of God. And it's like, you are Bildad. You are Bildad. Is who you are. So Bildad is also a believer in retributive justice. He says this, If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your later days will be very great. There's retributive justice. If, if Job repents, becomes a good person, then he will get what he deserves in the end. And then what, what's this appeal here? His next appeal is another thing Calvinists tend to do, is they appeal to ignorance. They appeal to Oh, God's ways are higher than our ways. We don't know anything about the divine mind, which means in their head, they mean I'm right and you're wrong. So whatever you're saying is just thrown out the window and my ideas about God are correct because I just said everything is so complicated, mysterious, and and so far above us, that means I'm right and you're wrong. That's what Bildad does here. He says, for inquire please of bygone ages. He says, Let's, let's talk about past wisdom, wisdom that's higher than us. He says, consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing. And our days on earth are shallow. Oh, we're just little creatures. We don't know very much. And so that means I'm right and you're wrong, Job. The last half of Bildad's speech is the same as Eliphaz, retributive justice. That God punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. We're going to finish off with Job's reply so that uh, we get a, like a well-rounded. I know we said we're doing four speeches, but we're going to cut into Job's reply because Job is our boy in this narrative. He is the person we identify with. We understand what he's going through, and we understand the behind-the-scenes things which justify Job and make his friend's arguments into a mockery. Job then answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. How can a man be right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him a thousand times. Job is saying this as a criticism. He's not saying, Oh, I agree with you. Yeah, I saw what everything you say is correct. He's saying, I know, I agree with you, and it's nonsense. It, it's, it's, it's bad. This system where one cannot contend with God, even when people are in the right, and just God is just so much more powerful than them. Yeah, I understand people can't answer God, but I'm going to do it anyways. We get a bunch of power acts between 4 and 10. He says, I understand God's mighty. God is powerful. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away, but who can turn him back? Who will say, what are you doing? 
God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. And Rahab's that sea monster that was referenced before. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. He's saying God is just so powerful. There's, there's no judge. There's no arbitrary between me and God. And so, yeah, I understand he's, he's powerful. He's the king. He's, he's the sovereign. But he's persecuting an innocent person. And it's wrong. And I'm going to stand on my integrity. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath. He fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Bildad's praises of God, Job is taking and subverting it and saying these are not praises at all. These are bad things that you're saying. This is perversion of justice. I agree with you, your points, but I disagree with your interpretation. I disagree with you saying this is a good thing. I'm saying that might makes right is a, is, is a bad way to run the world. It puts God in the wrong. He says, though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. God doesn't care, he's saying. God doesn't care about the blameless and the wicked. He just kills them all. And might makes right with God. And so no one could, can counteract him. He says, I agree with you, Bildad. I agree with you, Calvinist. And God just destroys who he wants. But that makes God wrong. God's in the wrong here. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. And I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and in my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man, as am I, that I might answer him, that we should both come to trial together. There is no arbitrary between us, who might lay his hand on us both. He's saying there is no one to, to tell God that God's wrong. If justice were to be given, there should be someone that could control God in order to tell God what's right and what's wrong. When God's in the wrong, someone would be able to challenge him. He's saying there is no arbitrary between God and man. And so Job is saying this is fundamentally a broken system. Let him take away his rod from me, let, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him. He's saying that because God is powerful and God could coerce people into agreeing with him. And if God didn't have that power, then people could speak up against God without fear of retribution. All right, so let's do a quick summary of the point-counterpoints within these, these chapters. Job 3. Job prays for death. And he says, why is God doing this to me? And God needs to withdraw his hedge of protection and just let me die. Eliphaz counters and he says, Job, calamity doesn't spring from the ground. You are getting what you deserve, whether you like it or not. God meets out a system of retributive justice. Everything that happens on earth, good or bad, is by God's hands. He's a, he's a micromanager and the punishment you're getting is for some sort of sin, is the implication. Job responds and says, this is not justice. This is well out of proportion for what normal people would consider justice. I have no sin. You guys, you guys tell me what sin I do have. 
Bildad responds and he says, you have sin. Uh, you, you are even, even when what you're saying about God, that God's perverting justice, even that is, is sinful. He appeals to a great and unknowable mystery that, uh, oh, I'm right and you're wrong because uh, it's all so mysterious. And there's this wisdom that's greater than you or I, which means I'm right and you're wrong. And then he goes and reinforces what Eliphaz says, that God meets out a system of rewards and punishments based on our actions on earth. Job's response is, sure, I agree with everything you're saying, but, it, but it's nonsense. What you're telling me is bad. It's evil. It's wrong. If there was any justice in the world, there'd be someone who could hold God's feet to the fire, who could bring God to account, but there's not. So might makes right with God, and that's a bad system. What we're experiencing is bad, and what you are defending is bad. All right, so those are the first five speeches of Job, and you could already see where this is going. Job's friends are the Calvinists. They believe God micromanages the world. Everything that happens happens for a reason. And they appeal to mystery, they appeal to dreams, they appeal to all sorts of, oh, God's beyond this, you can't talk bad about God. All these standard Calvinist arguments. And Job says, I'm, I'm not going to stand for this stuff, I'm not going to listen to your stuff. And who's the righteous person? Who is the person throughout the Bible who is seen as a paradigm of virtue that we should look up to? It is Job. Job is our boy. So take a note from how Job talks, how Job acts, how Job thinks. That's who we need to be. We need to be the Job rather than the Job's friends. All right. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, uh, send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page or even leave a comment on YouTube here. Thanks for listening.